So today's presentation is titled Harm Reduction in the Context of COVID-19. Um, I'm going to be doing the presentation and we're actually going to start in just a second with a guided meditation from my colleague, Jean Lundquist. Um, we're going to go for an hour today. Uh, participation is encouraged. It will be hard to do a lot of discussion or Q&A, um, but of course, uh, feel free to comment and then relax. Hopefully, uh, you can just sort of sit back, take in some information, get some new ideas and um, enjoy this. All right, Jean, if you want to take it away. So we're just going to do a brief practice to center ourselves today. So we're going to start by finding a posture that's comfortable for you. You can leave your eyes open or closed. We're going to begin by checking inside your body. Locating a part that feels good to you right now. Pleasant, safe, at ease, or at the very least, neutral. Let your attention go to this pleasant part of your body hands, or feet, or wherever you've chosen. And let your attention rest there. Feeling it, sensing it, letting your mind relax a little. You may notice that it may be difficult to focus on that part of the body. If there's a difficult emotion, let your attention go to that. It may be an aching in your shoulder, anxiety, anger, sense of sadness. Notice it for one moment. Feel it. Making sure to breathe. And now return your attention back down to that area that feels at ease, your hands or your feet, wherever you chose. Let yourself stay there for a moment, relaxed. Giving yourself a break from what could be potentially overwhelming to feel. Let whatever is there be there. Staying present and alert.
And now see if you can bring some loving kindness, just some kindness to yourself for whatever you're feeling right now. Relaxing in our breath, accepting what is, suspending our judgment, and inhabiting a space of neutrality. And when you're ready, you may open your eyes and we'll begin the presentation. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you so much, Jean. Uh, I appreciate the, the content of that guided meditation. Um, it pairs well with uh, what we're gonna get into today. A little bit of background. I think you all know who we are at this point. We're the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership. Our mission and our role is up there, but most importantly, our website and our email is up there if you want to reach out to us and see what else we've got going on at the moment. The learning objectives for today um, will be to gain a deeper understanding of harm reduction principles and strategies, apply a drug set setting framework to identifying harms resulting from behaviors as intervention targets, and learn strategies to use with clients who use substances to help them use more safely with particular considerations for the current context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Some of these concepts I'm going to sort of fly through. Really, harm reduction is a, a complex thing, right? It's a, it's a philosophy and it's a a set of principles and a set of techniques and strategies and practical interventions. Um, and the philosophy and the approach isn't something that always sits well with people, maybe because they've had different training that's a little more abstinence only focused or they've had personal experiences with substance use, whether it be their own or people in their family or loved ones. Um, you know, some people might have gone through a form of recovery that feels at odds with this. So, Typically when doing harm reduction trainings, there, there would be a space for that dialogue. And I just want to acknowledge that I wish that could exist today. Um, and I'm hoping that as Jean was just mentioning, you can engage in sort of a place of keeping an open mind and suspending judgment. Maybe if some of this stuff isn't what you agree with, we can just sort of take from it what we can use right now to serve the clients uh, that we do in the best way possible. Um, Okay, well, I, I hope that sits okay with folks. Let's move forward into trying to define harm reduction. So as I mentioned, it's a set of principles. These are four of the, I wanna say nine or 10 principles that the Harm Reduction Coalition, and that's a national coalition with main offices in the Bay Area and in New York City. Um, they've, they're kind of like the, the US's, uh, well, they're the US's coalition on harm reduction. They're sort of the, the folks that set the precedent uh, in this country. Um, they define harm reduction as a set of practical strategies and ideas aimed at reducing negative consequences associated with drug use, a movement for social justice built on a belief in and respect for the rights of people who use drugs. So they really see this as a human rights issue. 
Um, another principle is that they understand drug use as a complex, multifaceted phenomenon that encompasses a continuum of behaviors from severe abuse to total abstinence and acknowledges that some ways of using drugs are clearly safer than others. So we're not beating around the bush and saying that all drug use is just fine and we're totally hands off. This is, no, we wanna ensure that people are using the most, in the most safe ways possible, but we are acknowledging that people are going to use drugs and do use drugs. Um, and they affirm that drug users themselves are the primary agents of reducing the harms of their drug use, not us, and uh, seeks to empower users to share information and support each other in strategies which meet their actual conditions of use. Pragmatism is a huge piece of harm reduction. We wanna really meet people where they're at and really with what they've got going on um, and what their goal is at any given point in time. Another uh, definition up here, and this is um, from Tartarsky and Marlat. These are two sort of pioneers of uh, harm reduction psychotherapy. Uh, they state that harm reduction, a theoretical framework for addressing substance use and other potentially risky behaviors Right, harm reduction can be applied to a number of behaviors. We're gonna focus a lot on substance use today. Um, that aims to reduce the harmful consequences of these behaviors without requiring abstinence as a goal or a prerequisite of treatment. Okay, so what that's getting at is it's not necessary that people want to reduce their use or that they want to stop. Um, we are only trying to focus from this lens on reducing the harmful consequences of a behavior. And that behavior in this case for today will be substance use behavior. So why, why harm reduction? Why, why don't we just try to get everyone to stop using because it's obviously bad for them, right? Um, why harm reduction? So we wanna support autonomy and self-efficacy, which are necessary for sustained behavior change. I think we all know when we tell people to do things or our directive and we're not very person-centered, people don't necessarily do what we were hoping for them to do. They, they do what they want to do. Um, and when we support people's autonomy and help them connect to their motivation for change and for uh, promoting their own well-being, there's a greater chance they're gonna stick with those behaviors. Self-efficacy is a protective factor against things like uh, depression, for example. People really need to feel effective in their own lives to feel well. Um, why else? It's non-judgmental. Um, it encourages engagement and honesty about behaviors. You're going to elicit a, a stronger chance of understanding what's really going on, what's, what a client's substance use really looks like uh, when you take a non-judgmental approach. Um, why harm reduction? Because it's trauma-informed. Uh, harm reduction acknowledges that someone might engage in a risky behavior for many reasons possibly related to uh, coping with the impact of trauma in their lives. For example, I think we see people who are uh, living on the streets um, using methamphetamine, for example, to stay awake and so that they can be aware and alert and keep themselves safer. Um, that's one sort of really adaptive use of substances that, of course, has negative consequences as well. Um, but when you think back through the, the, the entirety of someone's potential trauma history, you can sort of piece together why someone might use substances. And we do have to respect that, that origin, that history for each individual. Harm reduction has a focus on increased options. So it's not an approach that completely precludes uh, goals of sobriety or abstinence. You know, someone can have a full goal of being abstinent or sober, but they may still use along the way or they may relapse. And so harm reduction just takes this perspective of, okay, 
great. Let's look at all the ways that we can be addressing your behaviors and the consequences from them to reduce the potential harms. And why harm reduction? Because it keeps people alive. And we think about this a lot with overdose prevention in particular, um, and uh, medication-assisted treatment, things that, that bridge people to a point where they maybe in the future may have a goal of sobriety or abstinence. But in the meantime, let's, let's definitely try and keep people alive. So what this is up here is a concept that really I love discussing uh, with groups. Some people are familiar with it, some may not be. It's called the dignity of risk. And we'll just not really touch too much on the neglect over protect continuum that is up there with this. But the dignity of risk concept has to do with the need for all humans to be able to make their own decisions. Just as I was just mentioning, there's, uh, we want to support people's autonomy. It leads to more sustained behavior change when people experience self-efficacy. But there's also this other sort of emotional sort of self-relational aspect around what it means, what our identity means when we have choice, when we um, get to take chances, we get to take risks and learn from those consequences of whatever choices we take. So the dignity of risk really, it's also uh, sometimes called therapeutic risk. Maybe some have heard of it in that context. Um, this just has to do with the fact that this is how people learn. I'm, I'm pretty sure everyone can think of a time that had they not um, moved to a city or gotten in a relationship that maybe was clearly not a good idea to some people in their lives who advised them otherwise, but had they not done that, they wouldn't have learned the lessons that they did. They wouldn't have accrued this life knowledge. That's part of the dignity of risk. We can't, we can't sort of uh, teach people they have to do and that we also can't keep from them the opportunity to learn of their own accord. The neglect over protective continuum that you see up here is a concept that uh, talks about as providers where we stand on this sort of varying continuum of approaching and trying to protect people and maybe be directive versus doing the really inappropriate uh, sort of interpretation of harm reduction, which is let people do whatever they want. They're going to do what they want. I'm not here to tell them what to do, so I just won't talk about it. As providers, we really want to sit in the middle and not be over-directive and parenting or anything like that, but we also don't want to avoid topics just because we've been told not to, not to tell people what to do. We want to engage in sort of an egalitarian, direct uh, information, sharing, um, but not advice giving manner. Okay, so let's move to how we can best talk to clients about substance use. Um, I always think of motivational interviewing and I'm not going to go into motivational interviewing in this training because that would be a longer training, but I'm hoping people are familiar with it. Um, pragmatism again and a non-judgmental approach. Some just pointers here uh, that I always think are just crucial when, and this is really in particular uh, stuff to fall back on when you are talking with someone and what they're saying is hard for you to hear. It's maybe uncomfortable or distressing, the worry that you're experiencing about what they're sharing with you or what you are aware of that is going on in their life regarding substance use. This is stuff to maintain that engagement so that you're not reacting in a way that could potentially make it so they don't wanna keep talking to you about their substance use. So speaking to your clients about their substance use as respectfully and pragmatically as you would like to hear from your 
physician or whomever about your own health behaviors. We have to check all of our judgment and all of our bias from seeping into the conversation. And that can be verbal and it can be in body language as well. Um, if clients perceive that you have a genuine interest in what meaning or role substances have in their lives, they're gonna be more inclined to share honestly with you about their use. It's so crucial to continue with an MI approach, no matter what is shared with you, no matter how alarming you may find it to be or how much you disagree with it. Um, and if individuals aren't willing to talk about their current use, try and learn about their history and their story. Ask them how they first got introduced to substances, what it means for them. You can engage from a place of curiosity, not agenda. Uh, even if you have one, that's a, a really crucial piece here. Uh, we can't let our agendas uh, be primary. We have to be person-centered and really sort of walk alongside, but let the person that we're speaking with lead. Um, and this can also really help reduce burnout on your end. You know, really hearing about people's stories. What was it, what was it like the first time they used? Where, who did they do that with? Um, what, you know, what's their attachment like to the substance that they use? Hearing, hearing these real, very human backgrounds of the people we serve, rather than doing a, a firm assessment on frequency of use and uh, details around that can be something that connects us with the work that we're doing and helps with the burnout just a bit. All right, relying on MI skills, no matter, uh, of course, what's, oops, sorry, I didn't mean to click through. Um, focusing on the, the risks and consequences and benefits of choices and behavior. So focusing on the positive, not just the negative. What, so we all know that using substances can be harmful, but what are the good things it's doing for that person? Um, making sure there's balance in that conversation, because if we don't, if we're just talking about, well, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, even if we keep things like a biased tone out of our voice and out of our body language, an over-focus on the negative can feel, um, can feel negative for the person on the receiving end. Um, and again, if attempted to advise or focus only on consequences, ground yourself in a trauma-informed lens, and paying attention to language, avoiding labels, and pathologizing. All right, and the benefits of this open dialogue about substance use or other commonly stigmatized behaviors. You won't be engaging in a power struggle with your participants that you will never win, and that's not meant to be sort of a harsh statement, but we think we know that. We don't have control over the people we serve. Um, they are truly the experts and the owners of their own life, maybe unless they're in restrictive contexts like um, being incarcerated or on probation or parole or conservatorship. But for the most part, we're not going to get anywhere uh, by getting in a power struggle. Uh, we'll actually know what's going on with a participant because they can be honest, for sure. And you're reducing the psychological impact of stigma and trauma by simply having these conversations in this open way. And that's something, there's actually like a harm reduction benefit around um, sort of like using anti-stigma language, uh, using non-labeling language. You are actually like helping to dismantle some of that internalized um, stigma that can be really impactful to people's well-being and mental health. And then, of course, we're authentically connecting with clients that can help prevent burnout for you. All right, this is a slide on MI, just to sort of remind briefly. Um, we're not gonna go into it. Uh, remember just these few acronyms. Um, this is the spirit of MI, partnership, acceptance, compassion, and evocation. Evocation refers to change talk. 
and ors, open-ended questions, affirmations, reflective listening, and summaries. These are the verbal skills that you can use. The open-ended questions, meaning you're not just asking yes or no questions, you're asking questions that would really elicit a, an in-depth answer. Affirmations, letting people know that what they're saying makes sense, uh, that you, you understand them, that uh, they're, what they're saying is valid, validating. Um, reflective listening, using fewer questions and actually just offering more reflections, right? So paraphrasing and summarizing what someone is saying back to them so they can hear what they're, what's coming from them and they can reflect on that in turn. All right, and then summary, same thing. This should be familiar to many of you. Stages of change, um, and I'm throwing it in here, not because we're gonna go into great depth with it, um, but just to sort of remind folks, I think right now with this current context, I can at least imagine, and I can speak to this just from my own experience of having elderly family members that I'm really worried about, that I've really wanted to get in there and you know, advise them on like, oh, you gotta, you gotta take care of this, 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 and this to lower your risk and being a bit directive. And I had to sit back at a point and be like, they're at their own sort of stage of change about one, sort of accepting what's going on with the pandemic and really going through this cycle of like pre-contemplation, contemplation and preparation uh, to make some behavior changes. Um, I think that we wanna remember this in the context of people that we're working with that may be going through, maybe they were in action or maintenance, um, maybe they were in substance use treatment and it was going well, um, and then they're relapsing, just sort of Reminding everyone that this is a tool that you can use with folks you serve to help reframe the fact that this is a This is hopefully an upward spiral as you can see in the center there uh, learning from each relapse that relapse is not a bad thing It's very normative so you can normalize that for folks and then you can really apply this again to everything outside of this sort of harm reduction and substance use or higher risk behavior frame and Consider it in all sort of behavior changes that people are having to face making right now is this familiar to anyone? Has anyone heard of the drug set setting framework? So this is a tool you can use when you are working with someone that is maybe using substances or is using substances. This is very specific to drugs, actually not really applicable to other harm reduction uh, topics. Um, this is a tool you can use when you find yourself working with someone and you're like, how can I help reduce the consequences, reduce the harms associated with their drug use behavior without reducing the drug use or trying to get them to stop the drug use? So this is sort of an exploratory tool that you can use to really think through what are all of the little tweak points. So for drug, we've got the type of drug that it is, the dose, so the amount of it that someone's taking. Um, dose and frequency actually should be in there. The source of the drug, uh, where is it coming from? Is it, are these like uh, prescription pay meds bought on the street? Are they, is it uh, heroin from the same dealer or different dealers? Um, potency that also goes along with source. Uh, right now, one of the issues we're gonna come up against is people not having consistent access to the same dealer or source for, um, for many, many substances and with that comes changes in potency um, and variation in tolerance and greater risk for at least opiates and um, overdose. So again, just working with a simple framework, you think about all, all the information you possibly have about the drug that the person is using. Set refers to sort of the, the person. What is their, 
what's their mindset? What's their, why are they using the drug? What's their motivation or sort of the relationship they have to use for that drug? Um, for example, my mindset right now might be really anxious, um, scared, uncertain, um, and my motivation in relation to use might be I want to calm down. I want to I want to cope. Uh, physiology has to do with you know what's going on in my body. Maybe I've not been sleeping for three days. I've been experiencing insomnia. Beliefs that can be something as sort of straightforward as um, I I believe this drug is going to help me feel better, or it could be something like. I am someone who experiences delusions and I'm having a belief that maybe isn't so reality based that could be coloring what I anticipate this drug to do for me. And again, some of this is could be could go in a positive way, you know, almost to almost like a placebo effect. Like if I have the mindset that this uh, this Tylenol is going to help my headache, it could help or this Prozac is going to help my depression, it can help. Um, at the same time, if someone is in a, a, a really negative mindset about the fact that they're using, that can really impact the experience they're going to have and thus impact the harms that they can incur. Setting has to do with where the person is using the drug. So the physical environment, that could be someone's home, someone's car, um, on the street, in a tent. Uh, what supports are around? Uh, so are, are people around, if they needed help, could they get it? Are they sort of flying on their own? Um, culture and social dynamics, again, social dynamics can be micro. So who who is literally with the person when they're using? Um, and then culture is, what's culture's attitude about the substance? Right? What, what's the stigma that goes with methamphetamine use? What is someone maybe aware of that can color their experience and how they can get access to support and what harms they could incur? This can also have to do with how illegal something is, what the risk is around um, uh, their potential arrest or incarceration because of it. And in the middle, we've got benefits and harms. And that's just to show they're both and they, they can go up and down. Um, and they're actually kind of manipulated by this three-pronged approach. Okay, so special considerations for drug set setting, um, again, within COVID-19. So right now, again, we've got reduced or inconsistent access to uh, drug sources, which can mean changes in potency and dosing choices, increased overdose risk. Um, set, we've got high levels of fear and uncertainty, potentially exacerbated mental health symptoms, and reduced access to care, and that's for mental health or physical health. Uh, setting, safer at home, this is sort of one big change, means most people are going to be using in isolation or some people are going to be displaced. So people who are having to be put into quarantine or isolation settings, um, moved off the streets, these are really going to change what they've got around them and the potential uh, risks associated with their drug use. So again, the purpose here is to try and think about each of these things and manipulate them. So if you've got someone who's using alone, they've just been moved into a hotel, uh, they're using alone, they've got a, a new drug um, from a new source, and uh, they're really anxious. So maybe we can help tweak the using alone part by providing a resource or an idea and problem solve around how they can maybe stay on the phone with someone that can be with them in case they accidentally overdose on this new and unknown uh, uh, source and potency of drug. Maybe they can use more slowly. Maybe they can do a much smaller dose uh, starting off to be more careful. Um, and then wait, wait an hour, wait two hours before re-upping. Things like that. So we can get pretty creative with it. Um, 
not going to go through any further specific vignettes on this, but uh, if anyone wants to at any point in time, if you've got one, um, I'd be happy to work through it with you at a point. So let's move forward to what I call the endless list of bullets, which is the bulk of the remaining uh, presentation. This is going to be a lot of sort of information and tips. Um, so the first sort of consideration we want to think about is what, you know, COVID-19 as a condition, what could that look like with someone who uses drugs? Uh, we know folks who are using drugs or alcohol um, likely maybe aren't as physically well if, we're, if they're using them a lot as some others. So it's important to remind the folks that you work with that um, specifically some early symptoms of withdrawal or a COVID-19 infection could feel kind of similar. Um, right? Hard to sort of diagnose that. Um, and maybe that's a good reason to try and keep people on not changing their substance use. For example, if they are alcohol users, maybe trying to keep a steady state so that they can actually be aware if they do start to get sick, not to use more, um, but just to sort of keep them in a place if they are at risk for withdrawal to avoid withdrawal. Um, these symptoms could include fever and muscle soreness. Uh, if, if symptoms included a persistent cough, which would be pretty novel for most withdrawal symptoms, it could be COVID-19. Um, drug users should be aware that their risk of serious illness or death is increased because they're gonna be, uh, an infection could uh, worsen the breathing impacts of opioids, benzos, and alcohol, right? So these can impact our respiratory system and the two together could make it so there's not enough oxygen getting into our bloodstream. Opioid withdrawal may worsen breathing difficulties. Yes, smoking, including drugs like cracker meth, make breathing problems worse. Pretty obvious stuff, but just good to think about, good to bring up with the folks that you work with if they are using any of these substances. And then if you smoke drugs like cracker meth, cigarettes or vapes, an infection will make it more difficult to inhale smoke um, and they'll worsen breathing problems. All right, let's move specifically to tips for safer use. How we start with the dangers of withdrawal from alcohol? I think everyone probably knows that alcohol is a big one for actually uh, risk of uh, serious physical impairment or death um, if withdrawal occurs. Um, so withdrawal for people who, who are chemically dependent on alcohol can begin within four to six hours of last drink. You'll see some sources say two hours, some will say six. Uh, I'm sure it just really varies based off of someone's metabolism. Uh, again, seizures are a big range. Seizures are more serious or moderate withdrawal symptoms can set in 12 to 48 hours after the last drink. And the more severe symptoms, if they're going to come, like delirium tremens, can come uh, in the, the time following that. Alcohol withdrawal symptoms include agitation, insomnia, tachycardia, tremor, GI upset, confusion, hallucinations, seizures, and DTs. And then DTs and seizures, as we know, can cause permanent brain damage or death. Um, prior history of severe withdrawal symptoms increase the risk of it reoccurring. So if you know someone has already had a really bad withdrawal episode that required inpatient treatment, you really would want to work with them to manage sort of their dosing of alcohol in a careful manner. Um, medication can assist, of course, with the mild to moderate symptoms and could be managed out, uh, over outpatient potentially. Might be trickier right now, um, but severe symptoms likely require inpatient care. Uh, so DTs, tr delirium tremens, DTs are delirium tremens. Um, they occur in about 5% of people experiencing alcohol withdrawal syndrome, and it actually kills about 5% of that 5%. So in delirium tremens, the brain's not able to smoothly readjust its chemistry. 
after alcohol has stopped, and this can create a, a state of temporary confusion and uh, lead to just dangerous changes in the way your brain regulates stuff like circulation and breathing. Um, so the body's vital signs then, such as your heart rate or blood pressure, can change dramatically and unpredictably, which of course can then cause a potentially heart attack, stroke. So that's, that's really the issue with them. Um, also just keep in mind that uh, benzodiazepine withdrawal, so that's stuff like Valium, Ativan, uh, Xanax, Clonopin, uh, that can also cause seizures resulting in death potentially. With alcohol, of course, if you're at risk for withdrawal, uh, make sure you have enough. That's, and amazingly, that those are the stores that are not closed whatsoever. Um, so it might be possible if someone has the financial means to do this and to be really strategic about their dosing of it if they are dependent. Um, avoid binging on that stockpiled alcohol, though, as a tip uh, to manage tolerance and supply. And again, at, if at risk of withdrawal, a good tactic can be recording the number of drinks that you've had and at what points in time or setting an alarm to go off, you know, once an hour, once every two hours based off of someone's tolerance or metabolism to make sure they're, they're dosing appropriately. Um, and we're right here, we have the standard drink. So that's a 12 ounce beer, five ounce glass of wine, or 1.5 ounce shot of 80 proof liquor. Okay, so some tips for safer use of drugs, and this is just in general. Again, stocking up, trying to get them from the same dealer if possible. Um, and stocking up on supplies, depending on what your route of administration is for the drug, alcohol wipes, to clean things like uh, cookers, pipes, or straws. Um, syringes, of course, you would like to have fresh, and we'll get to injecting safer uh, in just a moment. Um, avoiding binging on drugs to manage tolerance and supply. Uh, trying, again, to buy from trusted people and have as many ways to contact a dealer as possible. Um, sanitizing drug packaging and smoking supplies, not sharing the drug use supplies, but if, if someone has to because maybe they're unable to prepare their drugs themselves and this is what they do, uh, watching, observing the person who's preparing them uh, sanitize their hands uh, while, literally while they're watching would be one strategy. All right, tips for safer syringe uh, use. So what we're looking at here, ideally, someone would be using a syringe exchange, and they are open, and I'll include some information about the, the ones that do exist, and they're both just in uh, the city of LA. If someone is needing to exchange old syringes and get new ones, that's still a possibility right now. But if, for whatever circumstance, someone has run out of clean or safe syringes, because syringes, of course, can become physically damaged and be harmful, um, consider other methods of using drugs. That can include snorting, swallowing, booty bumping, or smoking a drug. Um, all of these methods are detailed in, in greater detail in one of the resources that I'll link to at the end of this uh, presentation. Uh, the CDC has a protocol for cleaning syringes, believe it or not. Um, not ideal, but this is an option if someone is in, cannot use these other methods of administration and is at risk for withdrawal or just so chooses to. Um, ensuring a safe container for syringes for used syringes is present. So if someone doesn't have an actual sharps container, like an official one, uh, they can use a big soda bottle or a laundry detergent bottle and label it in marker sharps container. And then paying attention to injection site infections or abscesses, wound care just might be harder to come by right now due to the strained healthcare system. I'm gonna just check and look for any comments. Anything in Santa Clarita Valley? I have no idea and I wish I did. Um, I'm sorry, I, I do believe the, the syringe exchanges. I think there are some syringe access points. 
Um, and I'll show you a link to uh, a site that can actually map out where those would be. And I, but I feel like they're pretty, um, pretty central within the county. But let's see. All right, preparing for withdrawal. Well, why don't I actually just start with stimulants? Because they're kind of the safest of the bunch for uh, withdrawal. Uh, the physical symptoms might feel bad for some people. The come down in particular might feel really, really bad, but they, it tends to not be life-threatening. Um, what can be an issue is really the, the depression that sets in, the psychological effects, and particularly if someone hasn't been sleeping. Um, so ensuring supports and coping strategies are present for folks who have been using methamphetamine or cocaine or crack cocaine on, for a long period. Um, if they actually are going into withdrawal from it, um, a risk might be that they uh, are, become depressed and more suicidal or, or would be more likely to self-harm or make impulsive decisions that would not be safe for themselves otherwise. So that's something to look out for. Um, again, going in order, going up in order of sort of physical risk. Opiates, the withdrawal is awful, uh, as I understand. And right now, a good point to make is that there is increased access to medication-assisted treatment, uh, such as naltrexone, methadone, or buprenorphine. These are opiate agonist and antagonist therapies. It's easier to get, we think, right now. I, I don't know. I haven't called to sort of uh, see how long it takes to be seen, even through the telemedicine options, and I'll get into that in a second. Um, but it seems like it's actually, if someone can't access their dealer, if they can't get the opiates that they need, that they're uh, dependent on, this might be the option for them. They might not have a choice but to engage in treatment if they want to avoid going through withdrawal. Um, so that's an option to discuss with them. And again, benzodiazepines. So if dependent, if really dependent on them, you want to ensure sufficient consistent supply to reduce the risk of seizure. Um, and again, if someone is going into withdrawal, helping them to sort of deal with the symptoms of it, like making sure that they've got uh, liquids, um, things that can be hydrating, like electrolyte-based drinks, OTC meds, like ibuprofen, stomach meds, things like that to improve their comfort during the process. All right, and in here, I've thrown in some info on overdose, um, just as a bit of a primer, and I don't know if we need it really, on why it's important, uh, why overdose prevention is really, is really critical. Um, so this data comes from um, the report that came out around LA County's homeless uh, mortality rates from 2013 to 2018. Uh, so, Overdose from drugs and alcohol accounted for 21%. And actually, if you add in uh, drug and alcohol abuse-related deaths, and that would increase to 27%. Um, so it's involved in more, even if it's not specifically just overdose. Um, with that, 88% 88, 88 of those overdose deaths were from drugs, and 12% were from alcohol. And this rate has doubled since 2013, and you'll see a sharp rise since 2016. And then California statewide, uh, so our opioid overdose deaths totaled uh, about 2,500 in 2018. That's half involving prescription opioids. And again, I'll get to a little bit on prescribing right now in a moment. Um, that's a 42% increase since 2012. Fentanyl is, wow, yeah, 858% increase since 2012 to 2018 in the number of deaths uh, resulting from fentanyl overdose. And amphetamine overdose deaths increased 212% in um, from 2012 to 2018. Uh, it's, these numbers are 
maybe they're not as bad as somewhere on the East Coast where uh, heroin and prescription opiates are a really major problem, but it's not good. And it means it's, it's happening here. And we've, we've got to do everything we can while we're really out of touch with the people we serve. And stresses are higher, uncertainty and instability is increased to ensure that they've got what they need to prevent overdose. So what we talk about with overdose, um, we're gonna, this is specific to opiates. So prescription pain medications that are uh, opioids or heroin or fentanyl. And as we know, fentanyl has snuck its way into things where you wouldn't expect it to be like methamphetamine and cocaine. So not gonna talk about fentanyl test strips. I don't have a lot of good information on that, um, but we can just assume that if people are using drugs, uh, uh, opiate overdose might be an issue. So right now, emergency services, of course, might be stretched. Um, maybe they aren't here quite yet, like they really are in New York City, for example, but it's maybe not the best uh, option to rely on just calling 911. Um, avoiding using alone and having Narcan, also called naloxone, present would be the best bet, right? Um, but people are isolated and sometimes people just do use alone. So a couple of ideas, um, calling anyone, literally anyone to monitor for non-responsiveness. So just having them stay on the line, the person doses, and they talk to them a little longer and just make sure that they don't become non-responsive at any point. Never use alone as a service. Um, it's a number that can be called into and also a Facebook messenger service uh, where some information will be taken about the individual and then the uh, person will stay on the line with them and monitor. Um, if you are using alone, trying smaller doses at first, waiting and then going slowly and increasing if that's what's needed to achieve the, the high and in intoxication desired. If using with others, making an OD plan with them and staggering use. So not having both people use at the exact same time and getting high and maybe um, not awake at the exact same time would be ideal. Um, with naloxone and Narcan access. So OAND is LA County's uh, overdose education naloxone distribution group. Their website is wonderful. It includes some educational videos, some training videos on things like identifying overdose, naloxone administration and rescue breathing. So things that would really matter maybe to teach to the people that you're working with so that they can do this for each other. Um, obviously less so in terms of your interactions with them right now because you, you won't be as interactive with them right now in person. It also includes a map of LA County's naloxone access points to obtain free, 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 Narcan or naloxone, same, same thing, just different, uh, one's a brand name. Uh, it also has an interactive map of the LA County's syringe exchanges and just syringe access points. And it has also a medication assisted treatment provider list. I haven't clicked through that, to, or I haven't called the number for a referral uh, to see how effective that is or if anyone's not picking up the phone right now, but that's a great resource to check out. I highly recommend going to their website. So LA syringe exchange updates. So uh, the two big ones here, uh, Community Health Project and Homeless Healthcare LA are operational, which is amazing. Um, I recommend going to their websites and just checking for updates on reduced hours and uh, changes to their services. But they're, they're doing amazing work and they're finding ways to at least do the syringe exchange process um, and using precautions while doing that. Also, they would include some other sort of add-on services. And I, I know this is really probably small type, but you can see here, uh, this is honestly extracted just from their websites on what their services are right now versus uh, you know, also 
what their services would be normally like with community health project. Um, you can see what they offer, uh, refer folks to them if, if that is something that the people you're serving seem to need. All right, let's talk about increased access to medication-assisted treatment. And I'm gonna do my best here. I am a social worker, I am not a physician, um, so I sometimes stumble over some of these uh, pharmacological interventions. But, all righty. So some things have changed in, since uh, the emergency orders were created, and they will be lifted for the most part. Most of, most of these changes in policy and regulation will probably go back to normal after, well, when uh, there's not a pandemic. Um, maybe some will change. I think some people, some like the coalition, may be advocating for some of these changes to be longstanding. Let's talk about what telemedicine can help with right now. So telemedicine is currently permitted for prescribing approved schedule three to four controlled substances, including buprenorphine and also including benzodiazepine. So that would usually require an inpatient, an in-person visit. Um, but they do, as far as I can read, now fall under uh, the telemedicine category. Buprenorphine or naltrexone can be initiated with a telemedicine evaluation. So these are these are treatments that can be used for people who are uh, they're opiate ones. I believe an opiate agonist, ones an antagonist. Um, but these are used for people who are wanting to become uh, to get off of opiates. Uh, new methadone patients, also an opiate treatment, will still require a physical evaluation. So what this means, people that want to go on methadone. Uh, still need to be seen in person, and I am not entirely sure how hard that is to do right now. If people have already been on methadone, they're, they're good to go. Um, but new methadone patients, that will require in person. If someone wants to get started on buprenorphine or naltrexone, they can do that uh, via telemedicine. So that's incredible um, that someone could get in initiated on a medication uh, without having to see someone in person. Um, so that's, that's definitely a reduced barrier. Again, if people have, if they're opiate users who've lost their source right now, this would be a potential uh, stopgap. All right, also around increased access. So OTPs, that's opiate treatment programs, can provide up to 14 methadone doses for clinically less stable patients and 28 doses for clinically stable patients. So this means people can take home more uh, or have more brought to their home. And that's usually not the case. Usually you might be able to do a take home of some limited amount if you'd had good behavior for a really long time, but I think the threshold is gonna be adjusted and much longer dose, more uh, longer durations of doses will be allowed to be taken home or delivered. For isolated quarantine individuals, opiate treatment programs can now allow a designated household member, and there's some hoops to jump through for that, to pick up medications or uh, the treatment program or the National Guard or law enforcement can doorstep deliver a lockbox of meds. Great, so the meds, methadone can come to someone now, which is wonderful. Schedule two medications, the really important part here is just that people can get more at once. Um, schedule twos are some narcotic pain relievers, opiates, um, stimulants, and a few others. I, again, I don't have sort of firsthand knowledge of how this is really going with providers. If providers are choosing to do this or, and if pharmacies, I believe pharmacies are required to comply. Um, and I also don't know what insurers are doing with this, uh, but hopefully this is possible. And this is of course to make sure people have a longer supply of what they need. So things that they have developed dependence on like uh, stimulants um, or the opiate pain medications, they should be able to access a 90 day supply of these Schedule II controlled substances. 
Whew, so that was a lot on MAT. Um, I would encourage checking out SAMHSA's website or the DEA's website for a, some really long sort of official protocol stuff on the, the, the really minute details around this. Um, and this is just the basic summary. Okay, so I wanna go into just a few key resources to highlight some links that I really encourage you all to go to to check out deeper info um, related to these topics. So the COVID-19 resources for people who use drugs and people vulnerable to structural violence uh, by the Harm Reduction Coalition. If you just go on, if you go to the Harm Reduction Coalition's website, um, which is harmreduction.org, you'll see COVID-19 and a little box that says more, click more, and you'll see a bunch of resources. And then within each resource, lists of other resources. They really have put together a substantial amount of content. Um, specifically within that is their, their PDF, that, which is around safer use during the COVID-19 outbreak by the Heart Reduction Coalition. There's some guidance that the Yale Program in Addiction Medicine and a couple of these, it looks like Global Health Justice Partnership and Crackdown created, really user-friendly, stuff that could be printed off and given to to people who are using drugs. They're really written towards the user. Uh, Never Use Alone is the, the resource I mentioned where someone can call in or Facebook Messenger to have someone monitor them. And then of course, Owen's link. I am throwing in some resources on sex work and COVID-19, which I'm gonna have no time to talk about and that probably could be a different presentation. Um, but here are some key resources, some key collections of resources really on how sex workers can keep themselves safe uh, from COVID-19 and safe in general, safer in general um, with their sex work that they do. Um, I've, I've, fought, I've sort of leafed through most of these and saw some really great pointers in there. So also things you can read through if you're working with people uh, who engage in sex work. Okay, this is my thank you page with my email address and Jean's email address who did our lovely meditation at the beginning. Um, feel free to email with questions. Otherwise, wishing you a great rest of the week and uh, good health and um, lots of inner peace and sanity as we all move through this pretty stressful time. <laughs>